Well, good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Si, muy bien. Muy bien. Acts chapter 5. And we will be considering this morning verses 33 through 42. And if you are using our blue Bibles, uh, this is on page 913. If you're new with us, if you're visiting this morning, we have been studying together the book of Acts. And so I thought, why not continue in the book of Acts? When prophet Nathan went to King David to confront him about his sins of murder and adultery, Nathan approached the matter by telling David a story, a type of parable. The story was about a hypothetical man who was abusive and unjust, a man who did something terrible to another man. Upon hearing the story, David became furious and exclaimed, that man should be brought to justice. A natural reaction in the face of evil, I guess. But there was a twist in the story that David did not see coming. Everything changed when Nathan said to David, David, you are that man. That abusive unjust man who did that horrible thing. That hypothetical man is you, David. You did that horrible thing. In fact, what you did was even worse. I'm talking about you, David. The story is about you. So David repented. You see, Nathan's story did not have its intended effect on David until the story was personalized and applied to David's heart. The story felt detached until David realized that he was in the story. He just didn't know it at first. I believe that the story of the resurrection likewise often seems detached from our present lives. And so we go to church on Easter Sunday and we might get somewhat excited about the story of a man who rose from the dead just as David did when, with Nathan's story. But unlike David, we many times go home without having understood that the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ has everything to do with us. So this morning, I want to be like Nathan for you. I want to take the story of the resurrection and I want to make it personal. I don't want you to go home today thinking, oh great, Jesus rose from the dead. Another Easter Sunday has come and gone. Rather, I want you to go home thinking, oh boy, I cannot remain indifferent any longer. The resurrection matters to me. So let's read our passage, Acts 5, through 42. When they heard this, meaning the Jewish authorities, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, meaning the apostles. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put them, the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. 
For before these days, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now, I will grant that this may not seem like a resurrection passage at first, In fact, you probably noticed as we were reading that there is no mention of the resurrection in these nine verses, but don't let that deceive you. The Bible's central doctrine is this. God sent his son into the world as a man in order to save humans from sin, death, and hell. From the beginning... To the end of the Bible, all of it is about the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, saving the world through the God-man, Jesus Christ. So, consider this. The first half of the Bible, meaning the Old Testament, is the anticipatory preparation for the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are the actual revelation of the incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And then the letters of Paul, Peter, John, James, etc., are the theological and practical explanation of what? You get the pattern? The incarnation, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In other words... If you miss Jesus in the Bible, you miss the entire message of the Bible. It is all about him. Now, where does the book of Acts fit in all this? Acts shows us the historical impact of the incarnation, life, death, and yes, resurrection of Jesus. In other words, Acts is communicating how the historical work of Jesus, culminating in his resurrection and ascension, affects all subsequent human history all the way up to the present day, including your life. So even though you don't find the word resurrection in our passage, you most definitely see the effects of the resurrection in the lives of God's people. And that is critical. This is critical. Don't miss that point. One of the most effective ways to prove the resurrection of the Lord Jesus is precisely by looking at the effects it produces 
on those who believe. As a matter of fact, the effects of the resurrection have been reverberating for thousands of years. Our passage for this morning will characterize those who believe in the resurrection of Jesus in what could be summarized in two words, joyful triumph. As the title of the sermon suggests, the apostles lived in triumph, not in a worldly sense, but in a Christian sense. The central burden of this passage then is to say and prove this. Don't miss this. Here's the central burden of the passage we read. Are you ready? Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Christians cannot lose. Come what may. Because Jesus is alive, Christians cannot lose. Come what may. If you don't like Christians, you're not going to like this sermon. It's going to make you angry. Because the central burden is to say, it doesn't matter what happens to Christians, they will not lose, they cannot lose. Come what may. Now, let's work that out. The first thing we see in verses 33 and 34 is the evil desire of jealousy. And what is the evil desire of jealousy? One word, kill. Kill. Last week, we left the apostles making yet another defense of the gospel of Jesus before the religious leaders of Israel. If you want to know what the apostles believed, all you have to do is read Acts 5, 29 through 32. And at the very center of their faith, of course, was Jesus of Nazareth. They spoke of his death. They spoke of his resurrection. They spoke of his exaltation in heaven. Without hesitation, the apostles declared, Jesus is Lord. Now, these words, however, did not sit well with those in authority over the religious life of the people of Israel. But that is obviously an understatement. In verse 33, we read what they actually thought of what the apostles said. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill the apostles. Why such violent reaction? One word, jealousy. Jealousy. They were jealous of the apostles. They were jealous of the authority given by God to the apostles. They wanted that authority for themselves. So let me ask you this. You know who else was jealous in the Bible? Lots of people, right? What about Joseph's brothers? Do you remember their story? Remember why they were jealous? They were jealous because Joseph had a dream in which he was exalted over his brothers. Do you remember that? And what did that jealousy produce? A desire for murder. They wanted to kill Joseph. Now the story repeats itself. But this time the jealousy was coming from the Jews and directed toward Jesus. Why? What did Jesus do? Well, he also came into the world. He told them who he was, and now he's exalted. Don't miss this, okay? There's a beautiful parallel here. Joseph's humiliation at the hands of his brothers led to his exaltation at the right hand of Pharaoh. Jesus' humiliation on the cross at the hands of his brothers, the Jews, led to what? His exaltation, but at the right hand of God. All of which explains their jealousy. So, listen to this. The primary manifestation of sin 
in our lives, in our lives, is that it makes us crave for personal autonomy and reject God's ultimate supremacy over us. Because of sin, we don't want a king. In particular, we don't want God's appointed king over us, namely his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the exalted man. You see? You see what I'm doing? I'm making it personal. I'm making it personal. Let me say this. Since Jesus rose from the dead and is now exalted as king at the right hand of God, you need to ask yourself this one question before you leave this room. Will I have Jesus rule over me as Lord? Or will I jealously guard my desire to rule myself? It was jealousy that led the Jews to kill Jesus. And once again, jealousy is leading them to want to kill the apostles. But when we come to verse 34. A Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the man outside for a little while. Gamaliel is none other than the man who instructed Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul the Apostle. This was no ordinary man. In the text says that he was held in honor by all the people. He was a well-respected member, not only of the council, but of society at large. And upon hearing that the council was getting ready to kill the apostles, Gamaliel, acting in a way consistent with his reputation, used his own influence to divert the situation and offered some advice. But as I'm about to argue, his advice came from a troubled conscience, which is the second point, the advice of a troubled conscience. One word, wait, wait. Gamaliel's advice in summary form is this. Leave them alone. Leave the apostles alone. Time will tell. Time will tell. Did you get that when we read the text? Time will tell. Time always seems to prove whether something is true or false, at least in Gamaliel's reasoning. And being the wise man that he was supposed to be, Gamaliel provided two historical examples in verse 37 and 38. Theodos and Judas the Galilean. This is most likely a reference to two revolts that took place in antiquity, led by each man respectively. The one led by Theodos probably happened around the year 4 BC, before Christ. The one led by Judas the Galilean took place around the year 6 AD, and both had to do with political matters and rebellion against the established order imposed by the Romans. But what mattered to Gamaliel was the things these two men had in common. Both of them were dead. Their followers, what happened to them? They dispersed. And their entire movement came to what? To nothing. Keep that in mind. This is precisely why I believe Gamaliel must have had a troubled conscience as he spoke these words. Join me as I follow Gamaliel's reasoning. Don't lose sight of the argument. It is actually really simple and yet very telling. This is his argument. If the leader of a movement dies, what happens to the followers? They're supposed to go away. 
For instance, when Jesus was arrested and taken into custody, what happened to the disciples? They all scattered. Eventually, Jesus was put to death on a cross from a purely historical perspective. And if we follow Gamaliel's reasoning, that should have been the end of what? The Jesus movement. Christianity. Correct? Isn't that his argument? After all, I think Gamaliel is right in saying, if the leader of a movement dies, the whole movement dies, dies with him and the followers, they go away. They're supposed to go away. That's what he's saying. But here's what's troubling about all this. If Gamaliel is correct about his advice, then there is a problem. A very serious problem for them. If Jesus is dead, why are his followers still around? I mean, it is true. At some point, the disciples did scatter. When Jesus died, they sort of disappeared. But now they are back together and stronger than ever. Something must have happened that reignited them. Yes, their leader had died. Everyone knew that. It was a public death. Jesus was even placed on a tomb sealed with a massive stone and guards outside. But for some reason, these same disciples are now back at it again. Preaching about that man who died on a cross. And they were doing so with astonishing boldness. Do you follow the argument? that he's making, by this point in the story, Jesus had already died. The disciples had already been dispersed, but now they were back together preaching, and not only preaching, but they were growing. They were growing. I believe Gamaliel had a troubled conscience. Consider the numbers. Theodos, how many followers did he gather? About 400, give or take. How many followers did Peter gather after his first sermon? 3,000. 3,000 people joined the apostles. The disciples of Jesus were multiplying. We're multiplying daily. Do you see why Gamaliel would have had a troubled conscience? If the leader of a movement dies, I'm repeating what he said. If a leader of a movement dies, the followers go away. How come the Christians are multiplying? What happened? Gamaliel's advice is essentially self-refuting. You know what a self-refuting argument is? Here's an example of a self-refuting argument. There is no absolute truth. How is that a self-refuting argument? It destroys itself. If that argument is right, then it is wrong. Right? It destroys itself. Likewise, if Gamaliel is right about Jesus, then he's wrong about Jesus. Do you see what he's saying? If Gamaliel is right in thinking that Jesus died, then he's wrong in thinking that he remained dead. Why? Because the disciples did not go away. They didn't. They kept growing. In fact, 
They were in the thousands by the time he said these words. In the thousands. Theaters, how many did you have? 400. But then they all went away. Peter had 3,000. And they were not going away. If Jesus is just another Theodos, if Jesus is just another Galilean, Judas the Galilean, a man who simply died, why would the disciples insist on preaching about him, even at great cost? And why is the movement still growing? Here's the irony. Here's the irony. Listen to this. Gamaliel's advice is right, but it proves him wrong. Do you get that? Gamaliel's advice is right, but it proves him wrong. The death of Jesus, according to Gamaliel, should have been the death of Christianity. But Christianity was not only getting stronger, they were growing everywhere. What does that tell you about Jesus? Well, it tells you that he cannot be dead. He cannot be dead. But he died. He really died on the cross. Now, this is the perfect setup for the next statement that comes from the mouth of Gamaliel, which is my next point. The conditional, the conditional that confronts the world. Two letters. Give me an example of a conditional. If. Two letters. The conditional that confronts the world. Verse 39. This conditional statement found in verse 39, I would argue, is one of the most consequential conditional statements you could ever make. If this is from God, listen to me, especially you, if you remain an unbeliever this morning. If this is from God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. Here's a paraphrase. Ready? Here's my paraphrase of what Gamaliel said in verse 39. If this is from God, if what the apostles are preaching is true, if Jesus really came to save the world and he is now alive, then we're going to start seeing lots of Christians popping up everywhere. If Gamaliel only knew. If Gamaliel only knew that more than 2,000 years have come and gone and the followers of Jesus keep growing, not only in Jerusalem, but all over the world. Why? Didn't Jesus die? Didn't he die on a cross, my friend? If you are an unbeliever this morning, you know yourself, you're not a Christian. Whoever you might be, from whatever background, I just want you to do one thing. Just look around you. Just look around you. If Jesus died, which he certainly did, why is it that there are millions of Christians all over the world? Is it simply because these people are self-deceived, believing only in their hearts that a man named Jesus rose from the dead? Or is it because a man named Jesus actually, historically, bodily rose from the dead? And be careful how you answer that question. Because if a man named Jesus of Nazareth actually rose from the dead in history and in his own but now glorified body, then this is from God. 
And for you to remain in unbelief, according to the Bible, is to oppose God himself. Not me, not Christians, God himself. I would like to remind you that many attempts have been made throughout history to exterminate Christianity. Persecution, intimidation, suffering, and many more strategies have been employed to free the world from Christians. And yet, it keeps growing. My friend, at some point, you just have to ask yourself, what if? What if? What if this is from God? What if the people around you, my friend, along with millions of people all over the world are meeting together today because a man named Jesus of Nazareth actually died, actually rose again, destroying death forever and is now Lord of all things? What if? Now, I am a Christian, not because I live my life and spend my days wondering if these things are true. If that were the case, I could hardly be called a Christian. I am a Christian because Jesus died and rose again, not as a conditional statement, but as a fact. Gamaliel, as he spoke these words thousands of years ago, had enough evidence back then to know that his own advice was proof of the reality of the resurrection. Why? Only the resurrection could explain the fact that the disciples did not become a thing of the past. True Christianity, true Christianity will never be destroyed because it is sustained by the one who willingly placed himself under the curse of sin as a man, namely death, and three days later destroyed it. He destroyed his power, the living one, the Lord Jesus who reigns forever, is the reason we are here today. But should you insist in your unbelief this morning, let me be like Charles Spurgeon and just whisper something in your ears. What if? What if? That conditional, that conditional statement will always confront you. What if? So this leads us to the stubborn response of unbelief. Punish. Punish. So they took Gamaliel's advice. What did they say? Well, Gamaliel, we certainly don't want to be opposing God. So what do we do, guys? I can just imagine the conversation. Well, here's a suggestion someone said. Let's uh, completely ignore the fact that Gamaliel's advice actually proves us wrong. Let's punish the apostles one more time just to get it out of our system. And then let's release them. Good idea. So just to be clear, guys, we agree that even though Gamaliel's assessment is spot on, which clearly demonstrates that this movement is of God, we will pretend it is not. Do you see how shocking this is? No one said, no one said this. Men, in light of the possibility, in light of the possibility that we might actually be opposing God himself, shouldn't we at least consider the idea of maybe repenting from our sins? Shouldn't we at least kick that idea around for a little while? Not a hint, not a hint of repentance. Repentance, seeing God's grace, seeing God's power manifested in the lives of these Christians, the Jerusalem temple authorities turned a blind eye and remained in their sins. 
even if that meant standing against God himself. Instead of repenting, they called the apostles back in, beat them up, which probably meant they were whipped about 40 times each, and let them go. Not without first repeating their original mandate. Don't preach about Jesus anymore. Be quiet or else. The or else is implied. You know what we are capable of doing to you if you disobey us. Don't try our patience. We were this close, this close to killing you. Next time we will. I'm convinced that by this point in the story, the evidence of the truthfulness of the message the apostles preached had become undeniable. What the Jews needed was not, not more evidence that Jesus had died and had risen again from the dead. What they needed was repentance and faith in Jesus. So what about you? What about you? Did you come looking for evidence this morning? Is that what you're missing in order to believe? Let me ask you a few questions. Are not the heavens, are not the heavens declaring the glory of God to you all the time? Is not the reality of sin in the world, including your own, a demonstration of your need of a Savior? Does not the ongoing, never-ending multiplication of Christians around the world tell you that this this is from God? Have you ever given consideration? Have you ever given consideration to the great loss, to the great eternal loss you will bring upon your very soul should you fail to repent of your sins and trust in the death of Jesus for your sins and believe in his resurrection from the dead? Have you come to understand that the reason the apostles preached with boldness, even in the face of death and great danger, was because there is only one hope for this world and is confined to this one man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The church exists today because Jesus died for sins and he lives forevermore. All of this has brought us up to the very climax of the moment, which is our final point. Consider with me, finally, the joyful triumph of the Christian. The joyful triumph of the Christian. Again, one word. Christ. Christ. In one of the most counterintuitive, counterintuitive statements you could ever read, we are told the conclusion of this ordeal. Verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Wow, disobedient man. As I mentioned toward the beginning of this sermon, the burden of this passage is simply this. Christians cannot Lose, come what may. And so I ask, how can anyone rejoice in their sufferings? How can anyone continue to speak a message about a man named Jesus, even in the face of death and even in the face of pain? 
How can anyone willingly give up their freedom and all earthly comforts for the sake of a message about a man named Jesus? How can suffering be the cause of rejoicing for anyone? Now, at this point, I would like to raise a potential objection against myself, in case you have it. Are not other religious people like the radical Muslims also willing to die, even to kill themselves for the sake of their own convictions? What's so special about Christians? Here's the difference. Radical Muslims willingly die for their cause, hoping that their very deaths will become the grounds of their acceptance before God. Christians, on the other hand, willingly suffer and even die for the sake of Jesus because they know that their acceptance before God depends not in their own deaths, but upon the death of someone else, namely Jesus, who died and rose again. The Christian is not resting in himself. He is resting in Jesus, who died for his sins, secured forgiveness, granted salvation, and through his resurrection guarantees eternal life. So what is then the triumph of the Christian? Three words. Union with Christ. Union with Christ. The Bible teaches us that through faith, we are joined with Christ and his death becomes our death and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. Notice this. Therefore, nothing can separate us from God. Our acceptance with God, both now and forevermore, is rooted in Jesus, the man who died and rose again. This is why even in their sufferings, the apostles could rejoice. This is Christian triumph. Not, not that we go through life free from sufferings and sorrows. Rather, our triumph is that in our sufferings and in our sorrows, we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to us by faith. But let me be more specific. Triumph for the Christian is union with Christ because for us Christians, the only dread we could ever face, our only ruin Our only ruin is not persecution, is not suffering. Our only ruin would be separation from the love of God. But these Christians rejoiced in their sufferings because they knew that could never happen because the love of God is where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Heidelberg Catechism asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? Here's the answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. But I want to highlight one little word. It says, what is your only comfort? Why is Jesus our only comfort? Here's why. If your comfort is in your earthly material possessions, they can be taken away. If your only comfort is in the strength of your health, it can be taken away. If your comfort is in the peace of your family, it can be taken away. 
If your comfort is in the success of your career, it can be taken away. If your comfort is in your spouse, children, and whatever other relationships, they can all be taken away. Brothers and sisters, there's only one comfort that stands both now and forevermore. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, alive forever. Christian, this is your joy, this is your hope, and this is your comfort both in life and death, that Christ belongs to you and that you belong to Christ, the one who died and rose again. Christians have many enemies all of which are seeking to pull us away from our hope. Consider the overwhelming list the apostle gives us in Romans 8.35. And he begins with like this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Notice once again that these enemies would like to separate us. Separate us, the enemy of faith. The enemy of faith is the hopeless sense of separation from God. But that should never be us. That should never be us. Paul continues, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? Now, don't miss what Paul is not saying. He is not saying that Christians don't experience tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sore. There are many Christians around the world who are experiencing all those things. That's not the point. The point is to explain what these trials, these enemies of the faith cannot do. And what is it that they're trying to do? Separate you. Separate. Why is that the point? Because the triumph of the Christian will always be union with Christ, unending, unbreakable, unalterable union with the one who died and rose again and lives forevermore. So Paul concludes, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So as the apostles received their 40 lashes and endured persecution, interrogation, prison, intimidation, dishonor, and suffering, they rejoiced. They rejoice because none of these lashes, nor prison, nor intimidation, nor suffering could ultimately separate them from Jesus. So they thought to themselves, our Savior lives. We belong to him in body and soul, in life and death. What can man do to me? They kept preaching the name of Jesus. Because Jesus cannot be persecuted. Jesus cannot be intimidated. Jesus cannot be imprisoned. He is alive forever and he's Lord and he's King. And so even though this song had not been written yet. The apostles, along with countless generations of Christians after them who have also endured and are enduring suffering, can sing. Oh, sing hallelujah. Our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah. Now and ever we confess Christ, our hope in life and death. So I have a final question for you, and we'll finish with this. When all things, when all things are taken away from you, what will you have? I know the answer. Apart from faith in Christ, nothing. You have nothing. Nothing you have will endure forever. All things in this life can and eventually will be taken away from you. 
And so, in just a few moments, we will stand together and sing about our hope in Jesus. And I want you to know, especially you, my unbelieving friend, especially you, that around you, around you this morning, there are people who are suffering as I speak. In this room, there is pain. In this room, there is loss. In this room, there are people facing trials and tribulations. But in the middle of those trials, we will stand and we will sing about a hope that cannot be destroyed. And we will rejoice in our sufferings. And as we do, just ask yourself this one question. If you are an unbeliever this morning, ask yourself this one question. How can they? How can they sing when the world seems to be falling apart? How can they sing with joy when the heart aches? My friend, you know the answers. I have told you already. Christ is our only hope in life and death. So to the, to the believer, I say this morning, sing with joy. Sing with joy because Christ is your only hope. Sing with faith and let the world see you. Sing with faith. And to the unbeliever this morning in this room, I tell you, let our singing, let our singing stand as a testimony to you. And then ask yourself, what if? What if this is from God? What if Jesus is alive? I'm here to tell you that he is. He is risen indeed. Jesus shed his blood to satisfy the justice and wrath of God. He died because the wages of sin is death. Then he was placed inside a tomb. A stone sealed it and guards kept it. But God looked upon the dead body of his son, having paid the wages of sin and having finished the work of redemption and with unquestionable power, God commanded death to lose its grip on Jesus. God said to death, let go of my son. At that moment, death left him and he rose in victory. So yes, Christians do suffer, but we do so with hope and even with joy. Because our hope and our joy are not sustained by our present circumstances, but by the one who died, destroyed death, and now lives forever, Jesus Christ. Can, can, let me ask you this. Can you say the same? When you suffer, where do you go? Where do you stand? Where is your hope? So I invite you to, to this. You could say the same. Because if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the hope of the resurrection. Thank you that our Savior is alive, as seen in the fact that Christianity continues to grow. We thank you for the ongoing, never-ending growth of your church, both here and around the world. Thank you that our hope is still alive. Because even, the, even though Jesus did die, death could not hold him. So I pray that you will work faith in our hearts today, that you will increase faith in those who already believe, and that you will grant faith 
to those who do not. And may the name of Jesus be exalted in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.